morning. Uh, great to uh, stand in front of you. Uh, it would be better to see you, but um, I invite you to turn in the Gospel of Mark. We're looking at, uh, we looked at all of chapter 13 last week. Today we're going to look at chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. And we're looking at the topic, really, of uh, politics and Jesus, or maybe I should have put a little better, Jesus and politics, right? Let's get the first things first. In any event, I invite you, beloved, to lift up your heart and hear the word of the Lord. Now, the Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on Jesus' head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold in more than a year's wages, for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Imagine. Imagine that at the most critical moments of World War II, maybe in the years between 1942 to 1945, that instead of the Allies winning key victories that led them to win the war. Instead, the Third Reich, the Germans won those key victories and actually won the war. Imagine then that they occupied all of Europe. They established their own law there, their own system of taxation that was rather brutal for all who lived there. But not having enough of um, occupying other people's space, the Third Reich decided then to take their military muscle over to North America. And beginning in 1945, they first conquered the country of Canada and our military, and then they went to the United States and defeated them as well. They occupied all of North America. North America becomes the Third Reich, the empire of Germany. They Submit or surrender the people or subject the people to heavy taxation, heavy tribute. They set up little military outposts in order to keep control over the people. It's hard times. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer, the powerful get more powerful, and those who have none are completely disenfranchised. In response to being occupied in this fashion, there are different responses. Some simply acquiesce to the new situation and get used to the new normal. 
Many, many others, however, begin to form pockets of resistance, political forms of revolution, but they don't do it all in the same way. Some of them, in a bid for resistance, go up into the mountains, go up into the hills and form their own little communities there, out and away from the world. Others of them go the opposite direction. They try with political intrigue to get involved in the German government so that they can change it from the inside in a wily way. Others of them embrace terrorist tactics where they go to take out key people at key times and key places. Others engage in guerrilla warfare. They go out with small groups and come in and have strategic battles that they hopefully win. And then others yet engage in popular level grassroots resistance movements among the most impoverished, the most marginalized, in either violent or nonviolent ways. But every time these pockets of resistance are found by the Third Reich, the German military machine lifts up its jackboot and squashes them hard, violently with brutalizing force, and usually in a way to bring public humiliation as a message to others, do not try this again. Now, if you are having trouble imagining that scenario, I might suggest to you, though advisedly, and only if you are an adult, because I don't endorse everything that I might mention from the pulpit, but there is a show on Amazon Prime called The Man in the High Castle, which imagines this exact scenario. And it is very, very fascinating to see how this plays out and the resistance movements that arise. Now, I'm not saying this simply because I want you to go to Amazon Prime and spend more time on the telly, because we're probably spending enough time on the telly. Neither am I telling you this because I think Jeff Bezos needs one more penny. Apparently, he's gone up already $90 billion since COVID-19 has started. So I'm not saying it for that reason. But friends, I'm saying it because if we can enter into and imagine this political situation and this revolutionary mindset, this desire for resistance, that's very, very powerful, then we can understand the world into which Jesus enters and engages, moves, and has his being. As I began suggesting last week, the world that Jesus enters into is a world where the Roman uh, Empire has defeated much of the world already. Recently, only a little time before Jesus comes on the scene, they had conquered Judea, they had conquered Galilee, they had conquered Jerusalem, they had taken it over. They had set out their outposts of Roman soldiers. They had inflicted heavy taxes on the citizens of that time. The gap between the rich and the poor became greater as they went to the poor landowners, the farmers, and took 40% of their crop leaving only 60 for them with their usually very large families to subsist on. When Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink or what you're going to wear, Jesus was addressing a situation that was in all likelihood literal for them. They didn't know if they'd be able to eat or drink or have their wear. In response to this, resistance movements arose. And in the same is the, in the imaginary scenario that I gave you. Let me put some names to it. The Essenes, or the Qumran community, the Dead Sea Scrolls come from the Qumran community, established a community out far and away in the hills, in the area of the Dead Sea, hoping to escape the gaze of the Romans. Others, like that we see in our text, the scribes, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, they thought the way to make things better and to become politically engaged and to resist was to get involved in politics at a very high level, 
at least to make things better for themselves, if not for the poor, and they usually ended up compromising themselves. Others would go the way of terrorist organization, and they would try to win key battles. This was the Sikari who would go into, say, a Passover festival and try to kill a key person at a key time. Others of them, like the Zealots, you might remember reading about them in the Gospels, they go and they're kind of like the guerrilla warfare tacticians. And then others, like I talked about last week, would get behind new messianic figures stylized after the David of old who slayed Goliath or Moses, who in God's power part the Red Seas and drowned Pharaoh, or um, a new Joshua who in the power of God made the walls of Jericho fall down. They would get around these leaders who organized in the desert, come in to foment opposition against their Roman overlords. And what Jesus says, the reason this is is so important for us, remember how oppressive this was, how awful the situation was, how unlivable the standards were for so many people, how many were marginalized. What Jesus says in Mark 13 is essentially, you're going to see all these revolutionary movements. You're going to see these resistance movies. They want to liberate a captive people, but... I do not want you to get behind these resistance movements. You are not to join in those revolutions. False messiahs and false prophets will come. They're going to want to take the battle to the big man. Do not get behind them no matter what they are. And the reason is because I and I alone am the true prophet and the true messiah who is running the truest and deepest revolution that needs to be done in the first place which is why I'm going to the cross because the political revolution that needs to happen is the revolution of the heart, where our allegiance to other powers shift and are given allegiance to God and God alone. We do not anymore follow the idols that we used to follow. Neither are we held under the guilt and the burden of sin because I'm taking care of that. The first revolution that needs to happen is the revolution of the heart, Jesus says. And imagine, if that revolution doesn't happen, then what's going to happen to you is what's going to happen to others. We're going to go and we're going to make things better for a while, maybe superficially, as those who did defeat the Roman army in 66 AD did. But if sin is still the operating principle of the system because it exists in human hearts, then it is over time going to corrupt that very system. So the greatest battle that needs to be fought is the battle against sin and death. And we need a people who are going to be able to live in the power of the Spirit of God. The problem with the message that I preached last week, the tension that exists within it, is this one, as I alluded to last week. Does this mean then that we Christians aren't to be political? Does this mean that we are not to stand up, stand against oppressive systems and political regimes in our world with all the strength that God will give us? Is that what that means? You know, maybe... That all we're supposed to do, because we know that we will never bring utopia here to earth in our own power strength, only the perfect world will come in at the end when Jesus returns, we all know that. So should we maybe compartmentalize and we say, as we have been doing in the West for a while, by the way, we say, we live our spiritual lives over here, religion is something spiritual, it's something private, and then we have our public lives over here, but we don't bring the two together And we see that our religious life and our spiritual life is inextricably interlinked with our political life and engagement in the world. Jesus, are you telling us that as Christians we must be apolitical, not fighting 
with a revolutionary fervor. Was Jesus himself apolitical? Well, the answer to this, beloved of God, I believe, is no. Jesus was political, and Jesus expects us also to be political. However, if we are going to be political in this world, then we must embrace the politics of Jesus. The way that Jesus does politics in the world. The way that Jesus seeks to overcome corrupt systems in our world and make a difference for the better. We must engage in the politics of Jesus. And so the question would be then, well, what does the politics of Jesus look like? What does it mean to embrace the politics of Jesus? I believe that the text before us this morning, although there's a ton that can be said about this topic in general, more than we will get done in this series, I promise you that. But I believe that the text that is before us this morning will kind of give us a foundation-laying ground zero about how Jesus expects us to be politically operative in the world. The first principle of how Jesus himself is political, okay? So let's look at our text together. Perhaps you will notice, if you have an eye towards literary device, that Jesus uses what is called a sandwiching, sandwiching device or an envelope structure in the text before us this morning. And an envelope stru structure works like this. You have, let's say, an A here at the top, the beginning of the text, and then you have some central material. Let's call it X. And then you have A prime down at the bottom. A matches A, and then the middle is what's being highlighted in specific, but to be conditioned by A and A prime. That's how kind of a sandwiching technique works. And what do we see when we look in this sandwiching technique in our, uh, our passage this morning? Well, what we see is that we have an instance of political subversion or political intrigue in A matched by another instance of political subversion or political intrigue in A prime. And then we have a center which is quite radically different from it, right? Because in the beginning of our text, we have the political leaders in Jerusalem, please, because there's no divide between one's religion and one's politics in that day. That is not at all how they thought. But there is intrigue by the political leaders who do not like the political following that Jesus is getting because the common people are going to him and Jesus is becoming a threat to their power. He's becoming a threat to their agenda, doing things their way in Jerusalem. And so Jesus, so Jesus, they want to take him out. They want to hire a black ops force and assassinate him in a covert way in some dark alley on some night where they can go undetected. And Judas, at the end of our text, also is involved in this political intrigue. Because he is going to go to these political leaders and for a quick buck, sell Jesus off. Jesus, in our text here, friends, I don't know if you've noticed this before on the Passion Narrative, but he's kind of in an underground church situation right now. You'll see in the next passage that he's going to send a couple of people to prepare a place for him in Jerusalem so that they can participate in the Passover feast. 
Jesus himself doesn't go to prepare because he needs to remain hidden. When they bring him, they bring him under the cover of darkness. When Jesus goes to pray on the Mount of Olives, he does so under the cover of darkness. He's in a covert, clandestine, underground church movement at this moment. And Judas, in a a moment of political machination, is going to tip them off to Jesus' whereabouts. It's political maneuvering. It's political subterfuge, to put it in one word. It is the politics of subversion that we're seeing here in this text. And then we have this very strange central material which doesn't appear to have any political overtones at all, in fact. Here we have Jesus meeting with a group of his disciples, his followers in a house of Simon the leper, and an unnamed woman does an unspeakably beautiful thing for Jesus, breaking a jar that's closed, and the fragrance is filling the room, and she anoints Jesus' head. She does this beautiful thing for Jesus, and you say, that's not political. Does that participate in the politics of subversion at all? Is this giving us some window into the politics of Jesus? And beloved, I believe it is. At an absolutely foundational level, our text is giving us a window, indeed, into the politics of Jesus and how Jesus is going to be and wants his church to be politically subversive in the world. Think about the setting that we are in. Here Jesus is, as he has been so many times from the beginning of his ministry, gathered together with the people who have come to him, wanting to follow his new way of being human in the world. And they're eating a meal together. They're likely worshiping together. They're quite likely praying together. All of them centered around Jesus. It is a snapshot of what is most fundamentally true of Jesus in his life and the activity that he is engaged in. Jesus, friends, does not seek to be politically subversive and topple the powers that be in our world today by going out like the Essenes into the desert, away from the world. He does not go the other direction and tell his disciples and train them so that they can be political operatives pulling the levers at the highest levels of government as a first order of business, please. He does not train his disciples to be good terrorists and take out key people at key times in key places. He doesn't train them in the art of guerrilla warfare. He does not try to lead a popular peasant movement, grassroots, a mass revolution movement, whether it's violent or nonviolent. He doesn't do any of those things. But instead, what Jesus does as an act of subversion in the world is he organizes around himself a new community. More specifically, from the beginning of his ministry, Jesus has been gathering around himself a newly constituted Israel, which is why he begins with 12 and only 12 disciples, because it's to match the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is the way, fundamentally, that he is going to subvert the powers that be in the world. You see what Jesus is doing? He is setting up a new community in the world who are going to be surrendered to his teaching, to his person, to his practices, and therefore who will live a new culture as a community in the world alongside the other culture. In this case, the oppressive culture 
of Rome. If you need a way to think about this maybe a little differently, consider this. Imagine that you're on the Pacific Ocean on the shore and you see that there's this giant ocean liner out there and the ocean liner represents the dominant world system of the day and all the world's people in your vicinity are on this ocean liner. They have their own captain, they have their first mate, they have their own rules of sailing on this boat. They have their own ways of relating to one another, their own socioeconomic expectations of how things are going to work. What Jesus does is not say to his disciples as a first order of business, I want you to get on that boat and take out the captain, take out the first mate, or try to revolutionize the people so that there's mutiny on that boat. That's not the first thing I want you to do. Instead, what Jesus does is he becomes a new boat. In the first instance, a very, very small one, a dinghy that can fit 12 people. And he teaches them a new way of being human in the world, which is a restoration of what God always wanted. But he says, this is how we are going to be a society. This is how we are going to be a community. Here's the rules of my boat. Live according to them. It's a beautiful way. And it's kind of a magic boat. Because every time new people come on it, who are invited to come on it, the boat just gets bigger. And they're invited to come on. You're welcome to come on this boat. There's a new culture here. And when you come on, you're completely welcome. The boat will just get bigger. And how does transformation of the other boat happen? It's not so much that people are sent in little dinghies to go to the other boat. That will happen. Surely the gospel will be proclaimed. But to begin with, what's going to happen is that the culture on the other boat is going to hear rumors and or see what's going on on the other ocean liner. And what a beautiful, wise, well-ordered people they are. And they're going to say, can you send some people over here to help us figure out this problem here? Transformation then will come from the inside out. As people who are living and who have been taught to live another culture come in, who are in the world but not of it, and are invited to be in that world but not of it, transforming it like a leaven. If I might, it's kind of like Joseph in Egypt. You remember the story about Joseph? Joseph is a person of deep integrity, of deep wisdom. He is one in whom others recognize. God is present with him. And Joseph goes to Potiphar's house and he is elevated to the highest place in Potiphar's house. He goes into jail and he's elevated to the highest position in the jail. He goes to Pharaoh's household itself and he's elevated to the place alongside Pharaoh itself. From there he brings bread to the nations of the world and he feeds them. Jesus is not adopting a new principle here in terms of his subversive politics, but he's going back to a very, very, very old one. God calls Abraham out, along with Israel behind him, to be a blessing to the world. But the first way that Israel is going to be a blessing, and the only way that they're going to be a blessing, is if they live according to God's law. And what's going to happen when they live according to God's statutes, God's law, God's way of being a nation? Deuteronomy chapter 4 is one of the most important texts, I think, for this topic in Deuteronomy itself. 
See, I have taught you decrees and laws, says Moses, as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them? The way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him. And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before them today? Jesus goes way back. The first thing that Jesus does in his politics is he establishes a new community who are going to live according to a new way of being human and that then the others will see and go, this is what it means to be human. I want to be a part of this and the boat will get bigger and bigger and we'll be invited in. It's not everything that can be said, but it's one thing. What are the characteristics of this body of Christ? What is to centrally characterize this new community of Jesus? Well, I think our text gives us a picture of this as well and also tells us why we will be a subversive force in the world. How does Jesus characterize this action of this unnamed woman? She anoints his head with this incredibly expensive fragrance. The others object and Jesus says, leave her alone. She has done something beautiful for me. Beloved, one of the things that is to characterize the church and our activity together is that we are the sort of people who learn to do something beautiful to Jesus over and over again. Learn to do something beautiful for Jesus over and over again. This is one of the things that our text suggests is to have priority in our lives. It is not that the poor are not important. Absolutely they are. And Jesus says, you can do for them whenever you want. And you should. And we will. And we must. But one of the things that is to be a priority in the community of faith, in the body of Christ, is that we learn to do something beautiful for Jesus. Look at the central dynamic of our text. In both of the people mentioned, Simon, we are told, Simon the leper. Why? Because it is most probable that Jesus at one time or another went to Simon, who had leprosy, and healed him. Jesus did something beautiful for Simon. And in response, Simon also now wants to do something beautiful for Jesus, not to repay Jesus, but out of the gratitude of what Jesus has done for him when it comes about and he hears that they need a place to stay and have supper, Simon puts up his hand and he says, oh, can I do it? Can I do it, please? They say, yeah, Simon, it's your turn. You go ahead and do it. And so he goes to the grocery store and he buys all of the best produce he possibly can. He does what he is able to do and he throws this beautiful meal for Jesus. He does something beautiful for Jesus. And then with this unnamed woman as well. Mark does not tell us who she is. But John and Luke give us more information than Mark does. John tells us that this woman is Mary. The sister of Lazarus. Whom Jesus has just raised from the dead. Luke tells us that this woman is a woman who had lived a life of sin. And he doesn't say what that sin is. It's not important. 
But again, in all probability, this woman, this Mary, has just had Jesus do something beautiful for her, raising her brother, forgiving her of her sin, giving her life in the most powerful ways imaginable. And now she, too, wants to do it extravagantly. She wants to do what she can. She does something beautiful for Jesus, taking this very expensive nard and anointing him as her king. And by the way, anointing him as all of our king because she is the one who anoints the Messiah. But she does something beautiful for Jesus. And it's to have priority in the life of faith that we learn to do something beautiful for Jesus. And we might say, well, how do we do something beautiful for Jesus now? And of course, we do something beautiful for Jesus by doing something beautiful for one another. Now, the body of Christ in the world. This is what we are to do. As a first order of business, we are to learn, as John says, right? This is my commandment, Jesus says in the Gospel of John, that you would love one another. That's the first thing. Many other things you're going to do. But before you do anything else, make sure that this is a priority. Love one another. Be beautiful. Do beautiful to one another. And then in John's letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, he says over and over again, this is the command that we have received, that we will love one another. In the body of Christ, We who have had Jesus do something beautiful for us are also to learn to do something beautiful for one another, to love one another. I heard, actually I didn't hear this past week, I was at the house of somebody this past week who has gone through a terrible ordeal that another person found out about in our body and on their mantelpiece was a beautiful bouquet of roses, white, incredible, And they said, with tears in their eyes, yeah, so-and-so came over and dropped this off. Uh, Somebody in this church brought over this beautiful bouquet of flowers. Friends, this is doing something beautiful for Jesus. I have heard of others in this body of Christ who give up their time to help others with their finances. This, sisters and brothers, is doing something beautiful for Jesus. When I was a Callow seminarian in my final year of seminary on internship in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, I received a card from somebody in this body of Christ. And they just wanted to encourage me as I entered into ministry because they said it's not going to be easy. This, friends, is doing something beautiful for Jesus. I had a conversation with Shane and Bernice. Bernice, many of you will know, lost her sister in a very tragic way this past week. And I heard that many people (laughs) and overwhelming people in this body offered to make them meals so they don't have to cook once. This is doing something beautiful for Jesus. Whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers, you have done to me. That applies Yes, to the poor and also to the church. It's almost as if, and here's the thing, it's almost as if unless we learn to be beautiful to each other here in this body of Christ, in all the ways that that entails, unless we learn to be beautiful, do something beautiful for Jesus by doing something beautiful for each other, 
We're not going to be prepared to bring the beauty of Christ out into the world. We won't have the maturity. It's a sen- there's a sense in which the new community of Jesus is a crucible of growing up into maturity of Christ. And if we are not learning to be beautiful to one another here, what makes us think that we are going to be able to bring the sort of change that Jesus wants into the world? Yes, we are to be world changers. Yes, we are to change the culture of the world. But the culture here needs to be changed first. If we are an unhealthy church, we're going to import that unhealth into the world. Jesus started with 12. It came, became hundreds, and then it became thousands. Today, there are some one billion Christians in the world today. I would call that politically subversive. We're making a difference. It started with a little dinghy. Or as Jesus says in the parables, it starts with a mustard seed that then grows to become one of the largest plants. Friends, this is the way of the kingdom. This is the way of Jesus. So let us continue to do beautiful things for Jesus by doing beautiful things for one another. To the glory of his name. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.